Hey everybody, welcome to the Sobriety Diaries. I'm your host, Nate Kelly, a recovering alcoholic seven years from my last drink, a recovery mentor and podcast producer. I am so grateful to be bringing you these powerful stories of recovery told by you, those who live them. Please share this podcast with anyone who may need it today. And with that, Let's open the diary on episode 102 of the Sobriety Diaries. Welcome back to the Sobriety Diaries, my friends. Today is so exciting, and it takes me back to, gosh, 1995. I was 13 years old. I can't tell you the impact that Cracked Review had on me today. We're talking to Jim Sonnefeld, a member of Hootie and the Blowfish. We're going to talk about addiction in the, the music industry. We're going to talk about Jim's personal journey. I can't even believe I'm saying this. Welcome to the Sobriety Diaries, Jim Sonnefeld. How are you? Just glad to be here today and, uh, yeah, surviving myself somehow after yes. all these years. Uh, and uh, always love to talk about sobriety and the Hootie journey. Uh, and uh, thanks for having me. Yes, thanks for making time. I think you said it perfectly. Despite what we try, and, and no matter what we did to ourselves, here we are surviving, right? Right. I mean, it's a, it's a journey of life. I always looked at people who gave me advice that said, it's not about getting to the destination. It's about the journey. I, I thought they were full of it. I'm like, no, it's about getting to the destination. But here I am, uh, you know, nearly six decades in and I'm thinking, yeah, it's about the journey. (laughs) We're (laughs) all going to the same place. That's right. (laughs) That's absolutely right. Jim, can you remember a pivotal moment in, in maybe the height of, of touring and, you know, when, when Hootie, Hootie and the Blowfish, man, I can't remember a time in the nineties where you weren't there. And, and you said just before we started recording, the band is going 37 years strong. Do you remember a a pivotal moment in your career where you thought, man, maybe I I need to make a change? Well, we had a slow and then fast, you know, uh, move up to the top of the charts, you know, started in the late 80s. And, you know, still by the late 90s, I was feeling good about our career. Uh, But sure enough, by the early 2000s, it was apparent that you know there were growing empty seats in the venues or the venues were shrinking in size and our record company uh, wasn't paying nearly as much attention to us by then i think they'd probably made their money off cracked review and uh, a couple our first three albums so we were in that place where it didn't look so good or feel so good and uh that's sort of where my drinking took a turn or my way of dealing with that feeling of, Oh my gosh, you know, the best years are most definitely in the rear view. No pun intended. I I could look back and say, it's all shrinking and I don't know how long it's even going to last. And I only dealt with it in the way that I knew, which was trying to keep celebrating what we had. And that always meant, raising your glass, doing a shot, going out with the guys and saying, look at, we get to be on the road. This is great. But as that really wasn't the reality anymore, I, that's where I, there was a big turn in my drinking. I I started drinking uh, and it wasn't for the same fun, joyous reasons (laughs) 
as it was uh, in previous parts of my life. And so I did that as long, long as I could until it no longer worked. And that was the end of sort of 2004. And so it was a pretty ugly three to five year turn downward where my drinking was controlling me. And I was just trying to get that old feeling back and it was never going to come. Um, that was so that was the first big turn when I was sort of moved from recreational use to uh, habitual uh, uh, sort of uh, medication <laughs> way. It of really using. is. It turns in, into drinking to survive, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I I thought I was having a good time. I just, if, if anything, I was just trying to convince me and others around me that this is still great, right? We're, yeah. we're having fun, we're partying, and so. But when it comes medicinal and not everyone sees it around you, that's, that's trouble. That's a, a bad spot. And so I, I lived in that spot while the secrets and the lies and the sort of deception built up and built up and, and, you know, they finally burst by the end of 2004, I had to come to a conclusion that I was powerless. And um, I, at that point sought help. And that was the other big turn in my life was being willing to ask for help. Wow. Yeah. It's such a shift in, in the mindset, right? Keeping everything internally and making the decision that we can't do it on our own. And there was a sense of relief for me. Do you remember feeling relieved when you just kind of put it all out there? Yeah. And I, I mean, I've sat around a lot of people through years who are in recovery and we hear different versions of people who resented that they had to seek recovery or people that were uh, introduced to recovery in handcuffs or yes. a variety of instances where they were not excited to be there. And as much as I didn't know anything about a 12-step model or these rooms of people that, that uh, sat around and, and, and had therapy and, and a pathway to a solution, as much as I didn't know about it, I was also admittedly a little in interested. I was like, God, I hope there's some answer, you know, yeah, maybe deep down, I just wanted to be taught how to control it a little more. Uh, I wasn't sure that having it be gone from my life was what I was looking for. But uh, the solutions that were offered, uh, once I realized that I was hearing a lot of stories that were just like mine, I thought, what, I, why wouldn't I want a solution? You know, why wouldn't I want to uh, uh, do something better for my life? I was 40 years old, so I figured, you know, I'm probably sitting at, at halftime, maybe at best of my life. And why wouldn't I want to do something that could be better for me and, and maybe even allow me to keep my family and my job. So I, I went in to that, you know, first, uh, first gathering, like curious and maybe a little hopeful, but I was also at the same time clueless. <laughs> same. I had no idea that any, this world of, recovery or resources or sobriety like i had no idea that that even existed so there's a there was a bit of fear for me in, in the beginning and this big question mark of what my life would would look like moving forward so that was that was terrifying for me now were you guys touring at the time was, was we there a, a meeting with the bands that that you had to kind of you know, disclose what you were going through and that you were seeking treatment or, or help? Yeah, I mean, I, I there were a lot of people that were, uh, you know, cheering on the idea that I could maybe get my stuff together. Yeah. So I had some people <laughs> that helpful. had been, 
giving me interventions and they were hoping that I would make a turn. Uh, but when I, I came back from my first uh, few meetings and uh, announced sort of to everybody that was in earshot that I'm, uh, you know, moving towards trying to stay sober. Um, you know, there was a lot of support that my guys were great. We were in the middle of, uh, you know, touring still. We didn't, we were a little, uh, I'm not sure what direction we were going in by the end of 2004, we were not touring like we used to. It wasn't like we were selling out amphitheaters like we were in the mid nineties anymore. We were doing a mix of corporate shows and, you know, state fairs and casinos. I didn't particularly like that style of touring, uh, cause you, you don't have all the leverage. You, you piece it together as best you can, but you're flying yeah. all over the place and happy to make a living certainly and still make music and have fans, but it felt like we were heading downwards for sure. And so I, um, yeah, I decided I would do it my way, which was probably not the wisest thing. I want to stay on the road around a bunch of people who are, you know, using uh, alcohol and drugs at varying levels or some of them not at all. Uh, but I'm going to stay in there because I don't want to disrupt it. Yet I do want everyone to respect what I'm trying to do. And that's a tricky and dangerous area to allow yourself to roam. You know, there's the old saying, if you hang around a barbershop long enough, you'll get your hair cut. And right. <laughs> that is exactly what happened to me. You know, I protected myself as much as I could. I, I stayed away from the bars after the shows we were doing. I, I couldn't really just hang out backstage after a show when things were getting turned up a little bit. I just wasn't comfortable there, but eventually, you know, I was near it enough and found myself staring at, you know, staring at a chemical and saying, Hey, maybe I'll just what? put a little bit of that in my body. Yeah. Right. See how this one goes. Yeah. And you know, it's, so that saying rang true. Um, I hung around the barbershop. I eventually got a haircut. <laughs> a little relapse, which was lucky for me. And I, you know, sort of put my tail between my legs and went back to my group of uh, recoverers and picked up a little surrender chip. And I was a little mad, like, yeah, yeah right. why do I have to do this? But <laughs> it was the right thing. And that was sort of the restart of my journey, which would have been February 2nd, uh, 2005, which is my sort of a uh, my anniversary. Nice. So with Snowman Melting, then, is this a, a collection that came to life after the relapse? And talk about the process of that album. Yeah, well, it uh, was part of my new journey in trying to make music uh, without the help, help of any chemicals. And then eventually it became something I couldn't let go of. So my writing intersected with drugs and alcohol abuse which made for some dark material yeah. and some you know not very riveting material let's just say <laughs> and uh but um yeah by 2007 when i'm thinking about a solo project which would become snowman melting i was you know sober a couple years and got in the studio with a producer who was also sober which was really great that was the perfect place for me and um you know i, I my biggest setback or, or biggest uh, fight was that I was not experienced as a lead singer. That was the first time I had done like real lead vocals. I'd written lots of songs and, and could hack my way through being a lead, lead vocalist, but 
when I went to do a whole album, uh, it was a lot. I mean, I had a producer, Francis Dunnery, who was putting me through the ringer on uh, singing styles. He was putting me through the ringer with uh, improving my lyrics along the way, which I'd never been forced to do because mostly it was Darius in that seat um, yeah. with the producer. So it was a lot. It was pretty heavy and a lot of work, but also it was a process that, uh, you know, I had to grow up a little bit. I had to realize you want to be a freaking lead singer, you better step <laughs> up to the plate and be a little confident or, uh, you know, be willing to work harder. And so I did, I, I worked hard and, but as it turned out, uh, making the project while a joy, um, uh, my life was changing so rapidly in my personal life that uh, by the time the album came out originally in 2008, I didn't really have much of uh, a margin to go out and like work it or promote it. And we didn't have the ease of the internet and, and Zoom and uh, Instagram really that much of the time. So it kind of got shelved, which is why we're doing a big re-release, which for a lot of people will be I don't remember the first release. Right. <laughs> Just the release. <laughs> yeah, right. Jim, I feel like music helps a lot of people in many ways, but perhaps a lot in their recovery journey. As a, a musician, do you turn to music as well in these sort of big moments in life? Or do you relate, I guess, music to, to these events in your life? Yeah, I mean, all four band members of Hootie and the Blowfish were first fans. You know, we we're, you know, music did something to us. And that's why we gravitated eventually towards picking up an instrument and attempting to write and uh, record our own thoughts and feelings. So, you know, for sure, we were inspired growing up by all sorts of music and, and lyrics from rock and roll to R&B to uh, country. There was a lot of stuff that uh, put Dean and Mark and Darius and I in a room finally in 1989 to say, let's try and collect this and maybe recreate some of the things that have inspired us, whether it was classic rock growing up or modern rock like R.E.M. or mm. whoever. Let's, let's try and do this. And when we started performing on stage, we'd all got the same feeling. We liked the sort of uh, meaning and the idea of the interconnectivity of fans and, and members of a band on stage. And we felt that again as fans growing up. But uh, so we just tried to uh, go out and express ourselves, you know, clearly. And, and the only way we knew how we weren't trained musicians, we weren't trained songwriters formally, but you know, it doesn't take much if you start and then you develop and you listen to some cues, you can, write some decent songs and you know we were lucky in some ways we had a gifted singer that was still developing his vocal talent and uh so that in the long run ended up being a strong part of our uh success as his voice was unique to the rock and roll genre the way we make music is vastly different than when Hooting the Blowfish started because of technology. The way we distribute and receive music is vastly different. So different, you know, so yeah. Been able to live through some big changes. I mean, if you look at when I grew up, you know, going to a record store and buying an album made of vinyl for $4.99 with about <laughs> 10 songs on it, that period is just like 
ancient times when you look at how kids that are the same age today uh, receive their music and, and how much they pay for it and the way they listen to it, not on a stereo with speakers, but in their ears. And does so that, it's, it's crazy. I never does that change the... to get to go through so many decades of change. And it's been interesting. And I barely hang on today. I'm glad we I have the brain to know how to zoom. That's a start. <laughs> <laughs> does that change the way that you produce the music? I mean, I'm sure production has caught light years, but as far as, you know, listening devices nowadays, it's either in your ear or over your ear. Does that change the, the production process? Uh, it does because people, because we mostly listen uh, on our phone or through, you know, earbuds uh, or maybe a car stereo. Um, that's different than the way people used to listen to music. So and when you produce, I think things are what they, I would say generally more compressed sounding. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to when you made music before, uh, it was going to be played through vinyl and, you know, speakers in a big room. And all that technology has been shoved down into a small space in our ears. Right. And you have to sort of uh, address that when you're making your music. And since music is made mostly digitally, um, that has a huge effect on how it comes through your ears or speakers too. It's just, it's a little different sound. I, I don't particularly love it, but I've grown used to how it sounds today. In the music industry there, you know, is this acceptance, I think, of, of drugs and alcohol or uh, this, I don't want to say celebrated, but this acceptance that, that, you know, you're in the studio, there may be drugs, and drinking, and is that a misconception? And when you do get sober, how do you navigate those situations? Well, like a lot of things in life, it's not exactly black and white. It's not wholly true that um, it's fully accepted, but, um, you know, in a lot of circles, uh, it is uh, accepted. You know, I've met bands through the years where like nobody particularly parties that hard or bands even from the 80s and 90s where they were out on the road and there wasn't a whole lot going on. But even when there's not a whole lot going on, there was always some level of acceptance, you know, whether you used it or not. No one else cared if you did. There's not much in the way of guardrails naturally that keep you in place out in the world of clubs, bars, backstage, crews, late hours, you know, these things uh, all lend themselves to people, you know, seeking a little bit of extra, maybe to stay up or to come down, whatever it is. It's, it's a tough lifestyle that involves a lot of travel, a lot of late nights. And in that sense, it's not that surprising that you see some abuses happening there. And, you know, I never looked at it very closely. I, you know, when we started, I played, started playing in bands and about, I was a late bloomer. I was 21 when I first started playing it, but, you know, I didn't mind that there was access to some recreational drugs and alcohol. I, I thought, well, this is kind of exciting. And that was me, you know, Yeah. some guys that were in the same situation would have said, no, why would I mess up the music with a bunch of, you know, hallucinogenic drugs. So it's different for everybody, but I seemed always to find myself amongst people who were 
yeah. more liberal-minded <laughs> with, with all that. And that's not any coincidence. I liked that. I liked that there were people that didn't care if I went to some crazy level or if, uh, if and I never cared if other people were for the most part either. And, you know, going down the road, it'll wear on you as we see, uh, you know, you see a lot of people from at least the rock and roll genre figuring out later that uh, drugs or alcohol no longer work for them. Um, and then there's another whole handful where they realize uh, they had a fatal relationship with drugs and alcohol. And I sure didn't want to be one of those people, but I was one that wanted his cake. Uh, what's the saying? You can have your cake and cake. eat it too. Yeah. Yeah. That was me. I, like I want to, I still want to be active. I love working out and playing sports, but I want to party as hard as I can. I want to make music and I want to break some rules and feel like I'm a rebel, <laughs> yeah. but I want to be perceived as a good guy. I had all these contradictions, which is part of after getting sober and having the obsession removed for drugs and alcohol, I had to work on these things still throughout my life. These contradictions where I, I want this and I want the other thing too. I want both sides of the coin to be mine. And uh, that's not how life works. And that's, you know, for me, when I do and practice the 12 step model, it always is going to show me uh, which way to go and that, that it's going to help me uncover my, my bad thinking or, or unhealthy relationships. So the more I go, the more I see the crazy contradictions I've had in life that I've wanted both things. I want to be you know, do crazy things, but be seen as a normal guy. I want to, I want to uh, get good, good grades in college, but I don't want to have to work for them because I'm there busy you go. partying. Right. Jim, if we have musicians listening and, and perhaps are using drugs and alcohol and, and writing some great music, but maybe using it as a, a crutch, maybe it's hard to see yourself writing and performing music without substances. How, how would you say to maybe, you know, break that and or for you, was that hard to imagine writing and performing music without it? Yeah, I had some fears because I had grown into a pattern that I used at the same time that I performed. Uh, I never was getting really messed up and then attempting to get on the stage. So that wasn't my problem. I, I had enough control that I could. Uh, you know, start partying the minute we were walking on the stage. So by the end, mm. if I was a little messy, it wasn't that big a deal. Got it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I say for those that are out there thinking about it, it's sort of try it if, and if you like it or if you, you're going to get some sort of feeling. Like if you think maybe you've lost control or maybe you're having a hard time uh, with your measurements of how much you're putting in your body. Yeah. Uh, try going without it. That that's gonna that research will will bring you some something back. Um, and if you struggle with you know performing on stage or writing without that elixir, that's also going to inform you. You know, either way, you're going to get uh, uh, some sort of information uh, if you say uh, I'm gonna try and go without it and. That was me for, for many years as people suggesting, why don't you try and go a period without it? Mm. And I never could. I would, I never wanted to. I would, you know, even if I'd gone a few days, I felt this bad flu sort of feeling. I felt, felt this like 
oh, I'm coming out with a cold all of a sudden. I don't feel right. And I didn't even know at the time that's called detoxing. My body yeah. was telling me, oh, my gosh, you, you're putting all these chemicals in you at a high rate over long periods. And then you want to stop cold turkey. No wonder I would feel like I had the flu. My body was screaming, put that stuff back in. That's what we've grown used to. And so be careful, whatever you're doing out there, if, in case you're working at a high intake level. Uh, cold turkey might not be the wisest mm. thing for you, but great point. Um, yeah, uh, the uh, it's uh, and I never liked uh, if I did last a week and I was supposed to promise two weeks. I was angry by the first week. I was like, oh yeah, not myself. I was just couldn't wait to get back to that feeling of putting chemicals in my body. So it's different for everybody, but yeah, if you're not sure, then do a little testing. <laughs> <laughs> a little research. So the re-release of Snowman Melting, originally from 2008, available now. Jim, tell us a little bit about that album specifically. Well, the music comes from the myself and a few other songwriters I collaborated with, but mainly Francis Dunnery, who's a renowned artist, uh, he's a British guy who's been around since the uh, 80s, guitar prodigy, prog rock hero in, in the UK. And we had met in the 90s. He was on Atlantic Records and we became friends. And uh, he's the one I called when it was ready, when I was ready to make an album. And he had lent his great uh, magical, uh, just radical thinking to the music and to some of the songs. He challenged me to write better lyrics, more personal lyrics, and and uh, we had a really good time making a record together. I was also, you know, still a little bit in the fire. As I mentioned, I was sober, but my life was still coming apart. I, I was struggling in a marriage, and I was struggling with some of the uh, principles that uh, I was being asked to live by in all of my affairs, and, and I just was staying sober, but I still had had some struggles discovering who I was and what I wanted in life. And so a lot of those lyrics are, I, I guess I could describe it as my, you know, coming out of the fire. My ass was still on fire a little bit, um, learning the hard way uh, who I was and what uh, my ideas turned into in actions. I could tell myself I'm sober, I'm good, I've got better thinking and my life is smoothed out. And in some ways it was, but there were some core ideas um, dealing with uh, self-centeredness, dealing with lust, uh, dealing with uh, fears and a little pride that that were still nipping at me. So these lyrics are about, you know, not just I get it, I know it, I've li I've lived it, I'm sober. It's a little bit like, damn, I'm still struggling with some of this stuff, and some relationships are unhealthy or falling apart or both. And uh, at the time, I had two little kids at home too, so I had some fears of of that I wasn't doing enough there. And so some of these song titles end up, you know, uh, talking a little bit about what that felt like. And, um, you know, that's, that's a good place to be all that sort of uh, uh, stress and that uh, urgency and that, oh, that rubbing that we get when we're trying to do something new and different. Some of that really comes through on that album. Uh, and, uh, so I enjoyed putting that out on 
on a a CD, the popular <laughs> compact yeah. disc format. <laughs> <laughs> that's how, that's so relatable though for the recovery community. Still feeling like you know your ass is on fire, or you know you still have these areas of your life that need some attention. And uh, you know I'm excited to listen to it. Yeah, the themes were are right there, uh, and they're all screaming. Um, why am I still going through all these problems if I've been sober a few right. years? Right, life still life is lifing all around us. Yeah, still it doesn't stop. Yeah. <laughs> a buddy of mine said, "There's no guarantee that anything around you will change after you get clean and sober." He said, "But if you do the steps, you will." That's so thought, true. That's, that's what we that's, can control, right? <laughs> yeah. The only thing is, is we can control is our attitudes and actions. So if we don't change those, we're just going to keep struggling with the world. That's right. Jim Sonnefeld, thank you. That was a, an amazing sort of glimpse into recovery in the music industry. I'm excited to, to listen to the re-release of Snowman Melting. Thank you so much for your time today. I think it's uh, very relatable. And, you know, even though some may look at you as, you know, this musician and rock star, it's, it's the same process. We, it's the same feeling. So thank you for bringing that relatability along with that sort of glimpse into recovery in the music industry. I appreciate your time today, my friend. Best of luck with the re-release of Snowman Melting. Any final words for maybe those who may still be struggling or how to, how to, pick ourselves up and put one foot in front of the other, start your journey. Yeah. I mean, the, what was hammered into me, but took me a long time to get was get honest. Mm. And when you think you've gotten honest, dig a little deeper because there's probably something underneath what you think is your most honest answer or uh, admission. There's probably something underneath that. That's the real truth. I had to, get down to some causes and conditions and understand what was really happening in my head with my fears and my pride. And so, and you know, what we find is there's a place to go where you can practice the power of transparency, where you, you go hear from other people and they tell their deepest stuff and there's a therapeutic value to that and you do the same, but it's in a safe space and you gotta, you know, find those spaces cause we need practice. I needed practice figuring out how to get honest with myself. I needed somebody so to work with personally, not just in the rooms, but someone who I could sit with in, on an individual basis and and be honest a little bit more at a time To because I didn't have that practice. I was full of it. I was hiding so many things and, and, and deceptive on low levels and high levels. And so get to a group of people where you can practice being honest and discover that there's a huge value when you can be self-honest. That rigorous honesty, right? Oh, I used to hate it. I'm, I'm getting into it a little more now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jim, thanks so much for your time today. Best of luck. Such a great conversation. Enjoy your weekend, my friend. Thanks, Nate. Take care. Take care. Thanks so much for listening today, friend. Hopefully you heard something that resonates with you. And if we help just one person, our job is done. Make sure you check today's show notes for all the information discussed in today's episode and how to connect with our guests. Until next Wednesday, try your best not to drink and be good to yourself. Bye, everyone. <laughs>